0: were it not for sin we would not even have a bible it was because of sin that man became separated from god dead in his trespasses in sin because of sin man cannot even think straight about god Right after he sinned, when he heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what did Adam and Eve do? They ran and they hid. They forgot that the one who created them with whom they had had fellowship really loved them. Immediately, you see, sin had perverted their thinking about God. Sin has perverted our thinking about God, so we do not think straight about Him. We must have revelation. The Bible is the written record of what God has revealed about Himself. But I was sharing with the men in the prayer meeting this morning before the service that the Apostle Paul wrote that masterpiece of a letter called Ephesians, where he explained the panorama of God's plan in salvation. But when he comes to the first prayer in Ephesians, in the first chapter, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Paul was a genius intellectually. Paul had been taught perfect, pure theology by the Lord Jesus himself. And yet he recognized that in the writing of this letter, in this massive statement in the first chapter, he had come to the precipice. And what needed to happen, he, an apostle, could not do. It was a work that only God could do. And so he bowed his knees and he prayed that God would open the eyes of their heart so they would see and know. And he lists three things. We need God to open the eyes of our heart. There is mental knowledge that can be taught about any subject and about the Bible. But that mental knowledge alone will not change a life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus knew the law. But he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He did not understand because only the Holy Spirit can give understanding. Only the Holy Spirit can give revelation. Paul, in the third chapter of Colossians, I'm sorry, the first chapter of Colossians talks about that God, that he's praying for them, that God would give them spiritual wisdom and understanding You see, it doesn't happen without praying. Paul came to the very edge and he had to pray because only God can do it. And all across this land we have folks sitting in churches who listen to sermons, take notes in their notebook or in their Bible. But nothing happens inside because we do not see our utter desperation for God to do what no man can do as the long as the sermon stirs our emotions and is entertaining to us, we're satisfied. But when we really thirst for God, when we really long for God Himself, we want God to reveal it to our heart, and we want God to reveal it to the heart of our brothers and sisters. And so in Colossians, the first chapter, he prays they might have Spirit be filled with spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Spiritual means it comes by the Holy Spirit. Wisdom and knowledge means to know the truth and knowing how to apply the truth. So, our great need is to have God reveal it to our souls. So, down inside, we actually feel the truth, know the truth deep inside and then we embrace the truth to obey it no matter what it is i personally believe that god wants us to live in a state of revival that's what we see in the book of acts they were all filled with the spirit peter was filled again and again and again i believe god wants us to live in a state of fullness but you see what keeps us from doing that is we compromise and we tolerate things that seem little to us but are big to the heart of God we tolerate sin and one of the big problems in the church in America is we do not fear God but we allow sin to stain our conscience to stain our lives and we come to church and we try to worship God with stained lives When the priest was getting ready to minister, they would go by the labor of cleansing, which is in the entrance to the holy place. They would go by the labor of cleansing and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet because they knew they would not dare enter into the presence of God with unclean hands and unclean feet. And so symbolically, they would wash in the labor of cleansing the labor made out of the brass mirrors that came out of Egypt. And God was teaching them, you enter into my presence clean. Psalm 24, Psalm 27, who, excuse me, 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place but he that has clean hands and a pure heart. What do we need? if we're going to have it rain down on us. We need to be serious about the issue of sin. Not excuse it, not tolerate it, not wink at it and not overlook it, but recognize that God is a holy God. And he was teaching right through the Bible, you enter my presence clean or you do not come into my presence at all. You see, there is positional cleansing. That means I have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. All my sins have been atoned for. But you see, there's not only the positional justification, there is practical sanctification. And I can't say, God, I'm I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ. My sins have been atoned for. It doesn't matter how I live Paul deals with that in Romans, the sixth chapter. It does matter how we live. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It's a triple negative in the Greek. It's the strongest way they could say it in the Greek. No, not, never. So as God's children, we have to deal with sin. I don't see that done much anymore. Too often our eyes are dry. Well, I sinned, I'll just confess it to God. But when we see God is a real person, a living being, a real person who is affected by our behavior, we will see sin differently. And so this morning what we looked at is the fact that God the Father, who created everything there is when he saw man's wickedness, when he created to be like himself, and yet, sin had so perverted him that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was sorry. And it says he gr- was, it grieved him to his heart. We must see God as a person. And then in Ezekiel, chapter 6, verse 9, we saw that God spoke about Judah, that they were whoring after idols. They were prostituting with idols. And he says, I am broken over you. And we can't just confine that to the Old Testament. Because you see, in the book of Revelation, when he spoke to Five of those seven churches, he said, repent. Basically, repent or else. And what Revelation teaches us: Jesus walks among the lampstands. You know what that means? He is intimate. He is intimate with Win Baptist Church. He's intimate with all of his churches. It's not that he just looks at all the churches generally, collectively but he's intimate with every single church. He said to the Ephesians, you have left your first love. He lists all the good things about them, but the one thing, the one thing he has against them, they have left their first love. You do not love like you used to. And he was grieved over it. The Laodiceans, they were lukewarm. He said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Basically what he was saying, you make me sick to my stomach. This is God. The same God that spoke to Judah through, through Ezekiel and said, you've been whoring after idols. That same God in the New Testament through Jesus Christ speaks about how he's disappointed, dissatisfied, and is about to judge the churches that he had given his life for. And so, dear ones, we cannot excuse sin. We cannot make lightly of sin. And then we saw Jesus looking over Jerusalem. And what did he do? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Messiah. And he wailed out loud. He sobbed out loud. Can you think of that? The Lord Jesus Christ weeping out loud. And I wonder sometimes as he looks upon the church in America, does he weep? Is he grieved? And then we saw in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 30, grieve not the Spirit. That's a command. There are two basic commands, negative commands, by the Word of God about the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is a person. And we saw together that the believer is joined in one Spirit with Jesus Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is one Spirit with him. That means in your body, if you are a child of God tonight sitting on this pew, there are two persons. There is you and there's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And how you live affects Him. You either delight Him who dwells within you or you grieve Him. You either delight the Father who made you or you grieve Him. You either delight the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you or you grieve Him. And so, dear ones, we're going to have to deal with sin. And I've, as I mentioned this morning, I've been in this race for 60 years. That's a long time. I still have to deal with sin. God still shows me things in my life that are grief to him. I still have shed tears because I still fall short of his glory. I want my heart to stay tender towards the Lord. If I get beyond the place of being able to shed tears over my wretched condition apart from Christ, I'm in trouble. My greatest fear is I will lose this passion and not care if I fall short. I have to stoke the fire every day. I'm supposed to be retired. I'm not. I'm just working in a different pasture. But I still get up early in the morning. When I was a 14-year-old boy, I was lost as I could be I heard a man preach a sermon, when I get to heaven, I want to go see this man and thank him because he preached this sermon and he kept repeating this phrase, this little bit of prose. And here I was a 14-year-old boy, only there to have fun with my friends from church at my first Baptist summer camp. But he preached this sermon and it was like heaven lasered it to my brain and I've never forgotten it. Every morning, every morning, lean thine arms a while upon the windowsill of heaven and gaze upon the Lord. Then with a vision in thy heart, turn strong to meet the day. I did not intentionally memorize it. I've never been able to forget it. And that's been the north star of my life. Every morning, lean thy arms a while upon the windowsill of heaven and gaze upon the Lord. Then with a vision in thy heart, turn strong to meet the day. And I have to do that to keep the fire in my soul burning, to stoke the fire, to feed the fire. And if I go before the Lord and the Holy Spirit says that is wrong, I have to deal with it. If I've been unkind or mistreated my wife in any way, I have to go to her and say, will you forgive me? I cannot minimize sin and ignore it. Now, would you look in your Bible at 2 Corinthians chapter 7? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, as I mentioned this morning from the English Standard Version translation, the New American Standard is very similar, the New King James is very similar, but it says for godly grief, or sorrow, some translations say, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Take a moment and read that to yourself. What is it that leads to repentance? Yes. What leads to repentance? Godly grief. Godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. There is a godly grief and there's a worldly sorrow. And Paul makes that distinction. Do you know what worldly sorrow is? I feel bad because I did bad. I like to feel better, so God please forgive me. Or I got caught, now I'm sorry. Sorry that I did that because I got caught. Worldly sorrow or worldly grief is selfish. It's about me. But you see the key word there, or the key two words, is godly sorrow or godly grief. Do you know when you love God? Do you know when you love God? When you are sorry for what your sin has done to Him. Not what it's done to you, what it's done to Him. That's godly sorrow or godly grief. You see, God the Father grieves over your sin. Jesus Christ the Son grieves over sin. The Holy Spirit grieves over sin. And when you really love God and you want His best in your life, you grieve when you've grieved Him. That's godly sorrow. There's not much of that around anymore. There's a meism in much of Christianity or what we call Christianity in America. It's all about me, me, me. It is not about me. When I come to Jesus Christ, I have given him my life, lock, stock, and barrel, mind, will, and emotions, body, soul, and spirit. He, belongs, he owns me. You see, there are many people sitting in church are not owned by the Lord Jesus they think they are but they fall in that group that says many will say unto me in that day Lord did we not do this in your name and this in your name I profess to them I never knew you the Greek there means I never ever knew you the issue is not have I professed him the issue is does he profess me because those people cast out demons, preached sermons in his name, did many wonderful works in his name. He said, I never knew you. I never did know you. I have never known you. And yet they did all these things in the name of Christ. The issue is do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him to the point that when there is some sin that you've committed or some sin the Holy Spirit throws his searchlight on, you are sorry for what it has done to him? Godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Judas never repented. Was he sorry? Yes. What about Pharaoh? Pharaoh was sorry, but he didn't repent. But when somebody loves God, really loves him, really loves him sin grieves them because they have grieved God and that leads to repentance without regret and so there are people in church who they've confessed the same sin over and over and over They want to feel better about it. They want victory over it. They want to be delivered from it. But the issue is they've never seen what it does to the heart of God. You never have to beg for forgiveness. Jesus paid the price for all your sins. It's not a matter of begging for forgiveness and God's not saying Well, it's in my hand. Just open my hand if you can. Get forgiveness if you can. God is so ready to forgive. Charles Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons, which I think is a powerful statement. God is more ready to forgive than you are to sin. But you see, what God wants is for you to love him. Luke 10, 27, Jesus answered the question when the man said, or the man answered the question, what is the great commandment? And the man said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said to him, you've answered well. What God wants from us is that we love him and we trust him. That I love him with all that I am heart soul mind and strength my entire being and if I love him I care what my behavior does to his heart do you love him Do you love him? Do you really love him? We sing about it. We talk about it. But the best evidence I know of is twofold. You grieve that you've hurt him when you sin. And with all your heart and soul, you want to obey him in every little thing, no matter what changes you have to make in your life. Do you love him? And when you flame the, the fire of love and keep on, fan that flame of love in your heart, your love will grow deeper and deeper and deeper and you'll become sensitive to sin more and more and more. And you'll have power to deal with it in the proper and right way. God loves us with all that He is. There is not a part of God that doesn't love you. He loves you with all of his omnipotence, all of his omniscience, all of his omnipresence, all of his eternity, all of his infinity. He loves you, loves you, loves you. And that's why sin grieves him. Because he wants the very best for you. He wants us to live in his joy, in his peace, in his love. He wants us to have that life Jesus spoke of in John 10, 10, life more abundantly, life until it overflows. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. He said, I've told these things to you that your joy might be full, and that my joy might be in you. He says, abide in my love. If we could just understand that God in his infinite, infinite, unchangeable love wants me to live in utmost peace, utmost joy, utmost love. But it's sin hinders it's so easy in our culture and society to compromise to tolerate and to excuse sin but when we see what it does to this person whom we call our father the person we call our Savior the person we know as the Holy Spirit, when we see what it does to God and we really love Him, then we recognize, I don't want that in my life. I'm so sorry, Father. I have grieved you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I'm so sorry please cleanse me and just that quick he does David after he repented in Psalm 51 He said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He said, restore to me the joy, the joy of thy salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He did not want to lose the conscious awareness of the presence of God in his life. May the Lord show us simply, clearly, precisely how we've grieved Him, and may we deal with it honestly, humbly, submissively. And just like the Father of the Prodigal, when we start towards our Father in repentance. Wonder of wonders, He comes running to us and welcomes us.